came to know anything about him, not least the man himself. Since he had been discovered wandering a beach in Sheerness in Kent back in April, there had been few clues as to this nameless man's identity. But the breakthrough came in rather unexpected circumstances. Having offered the man a pen and some paper, he drew for his carers a picture of a grand piano. Assuming that he liked to play, they took him to the hospital chapel, only to be stunned when the silent man produced a virtuoso performance. Hence the name with which the papers dubbed him the Piano Man. In actual fact, we live in a society full of people very much like that mystery gentleman. Individuals living lives to enjoy the moment and focusing solely upon it. Yet with no real idea of where they've come from or indeed where they're going. Sure, unlike the piano man, they probably know their own name, their family history and their place of origin. But when it comes to life's big questions, who am I? Why am I here? They have few, if any, answers. And so with no concept of a bigger story, they do the inevitable. Forget the past, ignore the future, and live for today. However, in sharp contrast to a society like that, Christians are called to be different. And of all people, they should stand out as being those with an uncommon perspective on life. For uniquely, a Christian knows precisely where they've come from and exactly where they are going, so that their lives are lived out within another framework of reference. And therefore, uh, as we come to continue in our series tonight, we want to focus on what it means to be distinctive for Christ. We've recently just launched a new vision statement as a church, conspicuous for Christ. Our aim is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers, transformed by the power and message of Christ. But one of the key ways we maintain that distinctiveness is by way of our unique perspective. And so as we continue our series in the evenings, The Conspicuous Christian, we look together at how we might maintain perspective in a world that lives for the moment. So would you please turn with me in the Bible to the New Testament letter of Titus, which throws some valuable light on this subject. There are pew Bibles, and if you take one of those, it's on page 1198. It's Titus chapter 2. And though we'll be concentrating on verses 11 to 14 tonight, we're going to read the whole chapter to get the context. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. 
Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage young, the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. And now our verses for tonight. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we've just opened up your living word. Now we pray that you might open up our minds and our hearts to receive it. May your Holy Spirit help both hearer and preacher. And may our lives be challenged and changed by your powerful word. In Jesus' name. Amen. For many of us, the island of Crete is best known as being a holiday destination. With a hot climate, at least in comparison to Scotland anyway, it provides Rest and relaxation for holidaymakers getting away for that well-earned break. But for Titus, a young pastor in the first century, Crete was anything but a holiday resort. This young man, probably in his 30s or early 40s, had been left on the island by his mentor, the Apostle Paul. And the remit Paul had laid on his young shoulders was a very heavy one. Evidently, there were a number of Christians on the island, but they were relatively new Christians and they needed someone to appoint leaders, someone with the knowledge of the standards required. Added to that, they needed someone who could then teach those leaders so that the elders themselves might be teaching adequately, helpfully. Well, Titus was that man with those responsibilities. And so as we come to Titus chapter 2, we find that Paul is priming Titus for this task. He's passing on various instructions to him that Titus, in turn, is to pass on to the churches. Now in this light, verses 1 to 10 seem a fairly straightforward list of instructions for Christian duty. In verse 2, we see that older men are not only to be respected by others, but are themselves to be men who are worthy of respect. Likewise, the older women are to set an example, living reverent lives 
training up the younger women by pattern and precept. And following this lead, the younger women are to be loving wives and mothers, going about their daily routine in an honourable way. No, the young men don't get off the hook either. They are simply told to control themselves. And Titus, who himself is a young man, is told to set them an example by his creed and his character. Before finally Paul gives some instructions for Christian slaves who should be submissive to their masters in everything so that they might be trustworthy in every respect. Therefore, you might be forgiven for thinking that what Paul is presenting here is merely a dry list of Christian duties. This might confirm your suspicions of Christianity, that it really boils down to a list of do's and don'ts, a kind of Christian moralism. Do this, but don't do that. But actually, that's not Paul's agenda at all. He doesn't want morality for morality's sake. No, Paul's purpose, if we read him closely, is in fact evangelistic. He's giving these instructions so that Christian duty might adorn Christian doctrine. So in verse 5, after giving various directions to younger women, he adds the motive. So that no one will malign the word of God. Or as he puts it more positively in verse 10, after instructing slaves how to live, the reason they should carry out their daily duties is so that in every way they might make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. In other words, Paul says, good behaviour should adorn the good news about Christ. And we should be able to define a Christian, as Robert Murray McShane once did, a Christian is someone who makes it easy for others to believe in God. So then, as we come to verse 11, we see that Paul is adding some further incentives for why Christians should carry out their duty on a Monday morning. For example, there's something of a role reversal because in verses 11 to 14, Paul now flips things on its head and he uses doctrine to motivate Christian duty. As John Stott says, it is sublime doctrines which give perspective and incentive to very mundane tasks. Now the doctrine to which Paul appeals is one of two appearances. One appearance has already happened in the past. For the grace of God has appeared to all men, verse 11. While the other appearance is still to come. While we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, verse 14. These are two dramatic and sudden appearances in human history. The word Paul uses for appearance was used at the time to describe the sun leaping over the horizon in the morning. Or it was sometimes used to describe an enemy emerging from an ambush to make his startling appearance. In fact, we get our English word epiphany from this Greek term. So what precisely are these two appearances, these two epiphanies which Paul speaks about? Well, for the first appearance, we need to look backwards in time and to what we might call the appearance of grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation, has appeared to all men. Some years ago, there was a scheduled debate in the high circles of academia. And they were discussing amongst themselves 
What was the distinctive mark, the distinctive feature of Christianity as a religion or faith? Various opinions had been given, but there was no consensus whatsoever. And at that time, the learned scholar and writer C.S. Lewis arrived to the meeting late. And when they asked him for his opinion, he was quick to respond. The distinguishing mark, oh that's easy, he said, it's grace. And Paul highlights the significance of Christian grace in this particular appearing. It is absolutely essential to Christian teaching, to Christian doctrine. Now it seems clear from both the past tense that Paul uses and the context of verse 13 and 14 that Paul is referring here to the historical first appearance, first arrival of Jesus Christ on planet earth. An appearance which is described, if you're interested to know more about it, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't simply say, as we would expect, Christ has appeared. Instead, he says, grace has appeared. And we need to understand that Paul is giving us a fuller picture of the character, the nature of this appearance of Jesus. It was, the apostle says, an appearance of God's grace. Now the grace with which we might have in our minds might be something different from God's grace. We usually take grace to mean showing someone kindness or favour, particularly when there's no incentive for us to do so. Uh, so, for example, if someone uh, gives us a compliment we don't think we deserve, we might say that someone has been gracious to us. Or if our car breaks down and a stranger stops to help, we might say that was gracious. But while the grace of God is that, his generous favour, it is even more than that. As Paul points out, the grace of God displayed in the past appearance of Christ is an example of saving favour. The grace of God which brings salvation has appeared. Grace is the saviour. See, it's perfectly possible to receive grace, even amazing grace, which is not saving grace. The grace availed to you may not save you from any terrible plight at all. But when Christ appeared in this stage of history, the grace of God made a saving impact. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that God wasn't gracious prior to Christ's arrival. The Apostle Peter points out that the true God is the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5 verse 10. Nevertheless, when Jesus entered the world, the grace of God penetrated human history. It broke through the moral and spiritual darkness in a new and radical way. When Christ first appeared, when he lived and died and rose again, this was a moment when God's grace appeared visibly embodied in an actual person. And it was an appearance of grace with astonishing results. For through this particular arrival, God would offer favour to the failure, salvation to the sinner, and pardon to the perpetrator. Grace to those from all walks of life and backgrounds. That's the sense of the all men at the end of verse 11. In light of the passage just before, to both slaves and free, rich and poor, Women and men, young and old, regardless of credentials or social standing or sin record, this grace is available to all who will believe. 
Now, when we stop to think about this and examine our own hearts, it really is an astonishing mercy to people who just simply don't deserve it. So as one writer has defined grace rather beautifully, it is God's active favour bestowing the greatest gift upon those deserving the greatest punishment. I was reading this week an interesting article that quoted the world-famous rock singer Bono. Now, I have no idea if Bono is a Christian or not. But listen to what he said. The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma, which so many people also believe in today. Along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes. But I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross. Because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And if you are a sinner, that's the greatest news in all the world. Because Jesus came into the world and went to the cross. We don't need to depend on ourselves. We can hold out for grace. Grace is the Savior. And yet it's rather interesting, isn't it, that Paul adds something else in the next verse. Because this grace not only transforms our eternal destiny, says Paul, it also trains us for present duty. Grace the Savior is also grace the teacher. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright, self-controlled and godly lives in the present age. You see, subsequent to salvation, grace teaches us two vital lessons. We enter this school of grace and we learn two things. First of all, it teaches us a negative lesson. And that is to renounce. To renounce godlessness and worldly passions. Literally, to say no to them. Now, being ungodly is to live our lives with no concern for our Creator and to demonstrate no likeness to our God in the way that we live. And most of the people who live around us are pretty much living this way. While worldly passions are somewhat similar, they describe those kind of desires which leave God thoroughly out of the equation. Selfish passions, not Godward passions. Yet Paul says, now that you know the grace of God, not only is your status with regard to sin different, but your attitude towards sin should be forever changed. You see, the cross where Jesus paid the penalty for your sin should forever motivate you to say no to sin. While you're surrounded by people who say yes, yes, yes to all sorts of things, grace teaches you to say no. Of course, there's a danger that Christians simply become known for people uh, who do not do certain things. They're the no people. Nevertheless, there are some things which Christians should say no to consistently. Because it's only as we say no to the negative that we can say yes to the positive. Living self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. That is, in relation to ourselves, showing discipline. In relation to others, being blameless. And in relation to God, learning obedience. And the point here again is that God's past grace should be our present incentive 
for the way that we live. The cross should firstly convict us of our sin. That's how we become Christians. But secondly, it should convict us for service. Good works. So as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he died for all, that's the past grace, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, that's the renouncing, but for him who died for them and was raised again, that's the living for God. So I wonder this evening, and I ask perhaps Christians particularly here, is past grace producing present godliness? Is the cross of Christ not only something that we're thankful for, but is it compelling us to Christ-like character on a weekday? Do we have that past perspective that makes all the difference in the present? We sang at the beginning of the service, only by grace can we enter. And yet the truth is also that it's only by grace that we can continue as well. Grace, you see, teaches us to say no to sin and to live for God. And yet it's not only past grace that Paul mentions in this passage, which gives us perspective and incentive. For in verses 13 and 14, Paul goes on to point Titus to a second epiphany. In this case, we might call it the appearing of glory. Now, we live in a society which is very little concerned about the future. In fact, most people who spend their time thinking about what might happen are probably uh, in it for monetary purposes. They speculate to accumulate. But a Christian focuses on the future for some very different reasons. For while there is much that a Christian doesn't know about the future, there is one fact of which Christians can be absolutely sure. And this hope, which we wait for, is described as the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The same one who appeared briefly on the stage of human history, who then disappeared, will now reappear. And this means that Christians are not mere historians. Uh, they're not even historians who just learn valuable lessons from the past for the present. The Bible insists that Christians look both backwards and forwards simultaneously. We live between a past appearance and a future appearing for which we wait and which we long. Now, of course, the idea of waiting is not that the Cretans and we should just sit around and do nothing. Uh, Paul has just outlined several things which they are to do and things which they are to positively renounce. Rather, this waiting carries the sense of a conscious but patient expectation for something about to happen. And that's something which Paul describes as a hope bringing abundant blessing is in fact a someone. Indeed, the same one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared in the past and who is returning in the future. A person whom Paul describes in wonderful, illuminating detail in these two verses. Notice the three things that Paul says about Christ. Firstly, Paul says that Christ's appearing will be glorious in its character. Now, it's true that even at Jesus' first appearing, his glory was evident to some extent. The Apostle Paul, uh, John, in the same place where he speaks of the grace of Jesus, also adds, we have seen his glory. John 1 verse 14. For those with eyes to see Christ's remarkable birth, 
His miraculous healings and especially his death and resurrection were a glory to behold. Nevertheless, that glory still remained veiled for so many. Many thought him to be an imposter king, not the king of kings. And they, of course, put him on a cross. But a day is coming when the veil will be lifted and every eye will see him as he is. Surrounded in glory. And the one who is the great God. Paul may be deliberately debunking a popular phrase at the time when people used to speak about Caesar, the emperor, as the great God and saviour. And Paul says, uh, no, no, when uh, Christ appears, you will see that he, in fact, is the great God and he is the great saviour. And uh, Paul is keen to stress here the connection between the saving work of Christ in the past, begun in the past, which Christ will fulfil in the future. For, when, for Paul says, when Christ appears a second time, there will be no spiritual amnesia regarding the passion of Christ. We will remember that without the cross, there would be no crown. We will look upon Jesus, verse 14, the one who gave himself for us. And we'll understand two particular purposes for why Jesus died for us and why he's returning. The first purpose is that Christ might completely redeem us from all wickedness. This redemption is an allusion to the slavery with uh, which the uh, people of Israel were involved in under the nation of Egypt. And you remember that God delivered them. He literally bought them out of that slavery, redeemed them. And Paul says this was the purpose of the cross. To reclaim a people for himself who would be set free from the chains of wickedness, or literally lawlessness. This morning we began a series on the Ten Commandments. And we learned that none of us are above God's law. Very bad news, for we all break the law. Even senior pastors, assistant pastors. But the good news is that Jesus' death on the cross can and will set us free from that lawlessness. So that we might live for God, or as Paul puts it, so that Christ might purify for himself a people, his very own, eager to do what is good. See, Christ paid the price for our sin, doing what we couldn't do, so that we might serve God and do all we can do. Of course, good works don't save us, the cross does, but the cross saves us for good works. No, good works don't get people into heaven. But heaven inspires Christians to do them. And so as Paul puts it in Ephesians, there is this dynamic. It is by grace you are saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Yet, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So I wonder this evening, is it happening? Are we serving Christ wholeheartedly in the present, in view of the future? Are we doing all we can do because Christ will soon arrive to complete what he began at Calvary? I suppose behind that question is an even deeper one. Is the glorious return of Christ something that we long for? Do we pang for it? See, I'm not asking whether you believe in the return of Christ like something that you would sign up for on a doctrinal statement. I know many of us here believe in the return of Christ. I'm asking, whenever your mind turns to think about it, 
Does it thrill your heart? Does it inspire you in the present to live wholeheartedly for Christ? Sadly, I guess that more than a few of us, and I include myself, are too often present focused too much of the time. And we need to gaze more upon past grace, long more for future glory, as we live in the present. For this is our unique perspective that we, and only we as Christians, can enjoy. Now, just a few words in conclusion. I want to return to the story of the piano man. For actually, there was a positive end to his tale. Eventually, the man in question was identified to be a farmer from southern Germany. And last month, Andreas, which they discovered his name was, was able to return home, living under the supervision of his parents. And I understand from the reports that he's now speaking again. It was a case of identity discovered or rediscovered. Yet perhaps tonight, there's an even greater discovery for someone here. A discovery of who you really are. Of how you really fit into the great story, which is God's story. Could be that you're here tonight and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And yet as the grand design of the Bible, the two greatest appearances in all history, the most significant events in history have been laid out, you've seen things fall into place. And you've understood that perhaps your identity could be found in a family, God's family. Well, if that's you, I simply say to you that Christ is a way to make that discovery. Christ is the discovery. His cross is where you come for salvation. His return is where he will finally complete it. But today is the time when you need to come and turn from your sin and trust in Christ and receive his grace. Come to him as he came to earth for you, as he's coming again to be your saviour or to be your judge. And ask him to be your saviour. And fellow Christians, if we know him, let us live in light of his cross, let us live in view of his coming, and that unique perspective will make us conspicuous to those around. Let's pray together.